Well, take out again your Bibles and turn to John's Gospel. Gospel of John, chapter 7. And we will today be looking at verses 25 through 36. John, chapter 7, starting in verse 25. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me. And you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go, that that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The grass withers, the flower falls, the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you for the reading of your word. We pray now, God, that you would help us to have ears to hear as the word is preached. Be with this your servant. We ask, O God, that what is said is your truth, that we would learn and hear and grow that we may worship our Savior Jesus more fully in greater ways. Give him all glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Many, and perhaps most of the people in Jerusalem, uh, were not convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, Though they wondered, how is it that Jesus was teaching so openly? But they they, they knew better, of course, because Jesus didn't fit their criteria. They thought, well, maybe, perhaps, but, you know, he doesn't really seem to fit. He's known. We know who this guy is. And the true Messiah, they, said, they thought, would simply appear. And what we read, and what we have read in the prologue, uh, in, back in chapter 1, is now being explained and detailed throughout. In John 1, 10, verses 10 and 11, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people 
did not receive him. Haven't we see that? Haven't we seen this play out throughout John's gospel? He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. Now, many in our own day and in our culture are also not convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. They will not receive him who created the world. But isn't knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord the most needful thing for any human being? Throughout this gospel account, the evangelist John has been stressing that salvation is a supernatural gift from God. And that one must believe and trust in Christ Jesus. To continue from John chapter 1, starting now in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so we have those who do not receive, and then you do have those that do receive, and they become children of God. The lost sinner must be born from above, or as we it's also seen, it could be born again. You can translate it either way. The lost sinner must be born again or born from above. Salvation is not something that we will for ourselves. And so there is this great mass of people, even in our own community here, here in West Plains, uh, people that are throughout the world who are totally lost, and they don't even know that. In fact, many would balk at the statement that they're lost. They'd say, you know, I'm, what do you mean I'm lost? Lost from what? Well, it's not, of course, that they don't know where they are physically. It's that they don't know where they are spiritually, and they are unaware of the trajectory of their life. They are committed to autonomy. They are committed to self-law. They are not committed to God's law. The unbeliever is a law unto themselves, relying on their own fallible human reason to determine truth and desperately being held captive to their own sin, thus where the unbeliever finds themselves and are unaware of that fact. Now in Jesus' day, even as in our own, there are those who are not convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who had been sent from God the Father. In, in, this case, in the case of many of the Jews, they were looking for someone else. We've seen this over and over again. You know, Jesus, Jesus just, just doesn't fit what they're wanting. They're, he's not the Messiah that they're looking for. He, someone else needs to, needs to fit the mold. Jesus doesn't fit their expectations. And so perhaps in our own day, there are people uh, along that same way. You know, if there's a Messiah, this, you know, this one doesn't really fit what I'm wanting. Doesn't fit my expectations. Doesn't fit my desires. Over the past several weeks, we've been looking at the narrative in the seventh chapter of John's Gospel. And Jesus... Uh, you may recall, uh, earlier in the chapter, had gone up to the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. We'd read earlier, uh, before, that he didn't come at the beginning of the feast. Um, That's when all the other pilgrims and crowds would have come. He came in the middle of the feast. And it was here, in the middle of the feast, that he began teaching in the temple. And the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Jesus had, in, in some respects, challenged his accusers. 
You know, but in his previous uh, trip to Jerusalem, or on a previous trip to Jerusalem, he had healed a man on the Sabbath day, which caused controversy among many of the authorities in Jerusalem. But Jesus points out, and we looked at this last week, that if it's right to reform circumcision on the Sabbath day and fulfillment of the law of God, then how much more is it right to heal? The law which came through Moses is not inconsistent. God's law is not inconsistent. Neither is it to be ignored as the unbeliever does, but must find its fulfillment ultimately in the law of love. Loving your neighbor. Loving the Lord. The problem is the opponents of Jesus were not looking at things rightly. They were not judging with right judgment. This is the statement Jesus makes. Judge with right judgment. And so the, ga- the crowds which are gathered here, they hear these things. They're amazed because here's Jesus, the man that they had heard. Many in Jerusalem were seeking to kill. And here he is teaching boldly in the, in the temple. And in some ways, you might even think, you know, sort of poking the eye of his accusers. Not in a mean sort of way, but showing them the error of their way. They're not really following God's law. And this is really where we pick up now in verse 25. So moving away from the subject of the Sabbath, the narrative moves to that of Jesus' public preaching. In verse 15, the rabbis had marveled at his teaching uh, since he had not studied in their schools. Remember, he said, well, this guy doesn't have letters. How how is it that he's able to teach this way? He hasn't gone to our schools. And the crowd thought that he had a demon because, you know, uh, uh, know, he, he was saying that people were trying to kill him. Thus, they thought he was insane. And now we hear from some others in Jerusalem who are at least aware of this fact that there, were indeed a, there was indeed a plot against Jesus. There were some who were seeking to kill him. And so they wonder, verse 25, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? We know this guy. This is the one, this is Jesus. This is the one that they're trying to kill. So the people of Jerusalem were far more likely to know something of the schemes of the Sanhedrin than, and the hatred that, that, was, uh, that existed among the leaders. Uh, far more, they would have understood that far more than those who had traveled from Galilee or other parts of the empire for the feast. They would have, in a sense, they would have been in the know. Yeah, what have you heard about this? this is, there's this Jesus fellow that the, the leadership doesn't like. They would like to see him killed. But here, here is Jesus. Teaching publicly, you know, for all to see. And so in verse 26 says, and here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Now here's the man who they understood was the target of the wrath of the leaders. And yet he is openly teaching in the temple in the middle of the feast. You know, one of the most important feasts in the Jewish calendar. And so this makes them wonder. Have the authorities now become convinced that indeed Jesus is the Christ? Maybe they think they, they've been convinced that this is the Messiah. I mean, what, could the other, what other explanation is there for their lack of action? If they want to kill him, why aren't they doing something about it? There he is. He's teaching. Surprised the people that Jesus was teaching so openly, so, so audaciously. That's so why I begin to wonder what the rulers thought. Might it be that the authorities have heard the evidence? Perhaps some new information has come to light 
And maybe those who have been opposed to Jesus are now convinced that in fact he is the Messiah of God. This is the promised one of the ages. If Jesus is teaching publicly and openly and no one is moving to stop him, then what else could this mean? And so they, they wonder about this. Could it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? Could it be that the leaders of Israel know that this is the case? Why else aren't they stopping him? Why why aren't they seizing him? Now this is the first time in John's Gospel that such a possibility is presented. You know, maybe, maybe this really is. Maybe Jesus really is the Messiah. However, that thought is fleeting. Because just as quickly as the idea that Jesus may actually be the Christ is brought forth, it is quickly dismissed and disappears from the thoughts like a mist disappears in the wind. Look at verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. See, here's what they're saying. You know, this fellow Jesus... He can't be the Christ because we know, where his, we know about his origin. We know where he comes from. We know, they say, where this man comes from. And when, when the Christ comes, you know, their thinking is, well, nobody's going to know where, where he's going to come from. And so, since we know this man's origin, they deduce, therefore, he can't be the Christ. Now, their reasoning comes from the popularly held notion of the Messiah that was held in that day. Uh, These Jerusalemites held the view that the Messiah would be born as any other man, but then would be unknown until he would just sort of suddenly appear on the scene to bring about Israel's redemption. In addition, they understood that he would be of the house of David, and so he would necessarily have needed to have come from Bethlehem. And this is indicated later in verse 42. And so with such an understanding, there really isn't any room for, well, maybe this is the Christ, or, or maybe this isn't the Christ, you know, who knows. Because as far as they're concerned, they already know where Jesus comes from. Jesus is the son of Joseph, who comes from Nazareth in Galilee. His family is living in Capernaum. He's been a traveling preacher for some time. We know who he is. And so as they understood matters, again, Jesus doesn't fit the bill. He doesn't fit their expectations. His origin is known. And he's, he's coming even from the wrong place. So as much as these people in Jerusalem thought they knew the origins of Jesus, the irony is that they're actually quite ignorant of the origins of Jesus. Jesus had been living in Galilee, but, we, we, but he was born in Bethlehem. I know they didn't have Luke chapter 2 to read like we do. But th- he was born in Bethlehem. They also had a wrong understanding of the prophecies. And so here, here are all these people in Jerusalem. They don't know as much as they think they know. They misunderstood. In some sense, the people have talked themselves out of knowing the truth. It's the sort of thing that people do. Here's the truth. Well, here's all the reasons why that can't really be true, even though it is true. Perhaps you've done this yourself before. Talk yourself out of the truth. Here they are speaking, they're talking themselves out of the truth. The scriptures, the Old Testament, the words of the prophets, the promises of God, all of it was there for them to examine and see. 
They simply didn't have eyes to see, and so they refused to believe. They remained unconvinced because they relied on their own autonomous human wisdom and not on the wisdom of God. Well, the grumbling and all the whispers of the people as they debated the origins of Jesus become supernaturally known to Jesus. And so he responds to their flawed understanding. He says, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And then look at this, and him you do not know. What is Jesus saying to them? Well, Jesus here is employing a great irony. For as much as they think they know about his origins, as much as they think they know about Jesus, you know, they know where he comes from. They know about his family. The, the, the thing is, is they, what they don't know about him is of greater significance. They don't actually know the important things. Jesus has been truly sent by the Father. This is what he says. He who sent me is true. Truly, he's been sent by the Father. It is not that the people might doubt that God is real. He's not saying, you know, you know God is true. That's not actually what he's saying. It's not that the people might doubt that. They, they, that's not the point. Jesus is saying that it is true that he was sent by God. It is true that the Father sent the Son. But the sad thing is, these people don't even know God. That's the irony. They think they know, but what they don't know is of greater significance. They don't actually know God. As Jews, they should have known God. Because they prided themselves on knowing the one true God, right? They had the scriptures of the Old Testament. They had the law and the prophets, They had the privilege of being in the covenant of God. They had a godly heritage. They had the ordinances. They had the feasts. You know, they they, they were not like the Gentiles who lived in ignorance, who didn't know the one true God, who had never even heard of the one true God. I mean, you think about in Athens, you know, they have, you know, this... You know, you know this thing to the unknown God, right? You know, they've got all these gods. I'm like, well, maybe there's one we miss. So there's this unknown God. Here, here are the, the people who actually know about the one true God and yet don't actually know Him, which is sad, isn't it? They don't really, truly know God. They knew about God, perhaps, but they didn't actually know God. By the way, this could be said about lots of people in the churches, in our churches, right? Lots of people know about God. They've heard, they've heard the gospel. They've heard about Jesus, right? But they don't actually know him. That's tragic, isn't it? Lots of people, just like these Jerusalemites, know about God. You know, they believe that God had best revealed himself in his law, and yet they missed what the law was pointing to. They missed the point of the law. They missed that all the law and prophets pointed to Jesus Christ. They had refused to acknowledge the Son of God. And they rejected the notion that Jesus had been sent by the Father. Because, because they didn't know the Father, they couldn't know the Son. And they can't, know the, they can't know the Son, or they can't know the Father without the Son. 
And so they don't know God at all. They don't they they, they didn't know they didn't know Christ. Verse 29. Jesus says, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Their rejection of the one who was sent is rejection of the sender. Right? They don't know God. Those who know God would not reject the Son. The fact that they have rejected the Son shows they don't know God because the Father had sent the Son. The Son had come from the Father. He is from Him. He knows Him intimately. You see what Jesus is saying, don't you? The fact that they don't don't recognize Him means that they don't even know the one who sent Him. And so the point is pretty clear. Those who recognize who Jesus really is prove that they know God. But those who cannot discern that Jesus is the Christ can't possibly know God. Especially since the very incarnate Word of God was standing right before them. Since these Jerusalemites had rejected the Son, they therefore had shown that they don't even know the Father. Their attitude toward Jesus then is born out of their attitude or their basic unbelief. They didn't believe. And so as a result of Jesus' hard words, see, the the people understood the implications of what he was saying. Because of the statement that that he made, basically, you know, he told them, they got it. You don't know God. They got that. And so as a result of that, they sought to arrest him. Now, perhaps this is, they did this spontaneously, right? Like, in anger. Like, what do you mean I don't know God? You know, let's, let's take this guy. Let's arrest him. Uh, this is different, perhaps, than the more formal efforts to seize him, which we also will see. But what is clear here, too, is that there is a division among the people in Jerusalem about Jesus. And, of course, this is to be expected, isn't it? Don't we expect that this would be, there would be divisions over who is Jesus? Is he the Christ? We expect this. Wherever the revelation of God in Christ Jesus confronts men, confronts them in their sin, there's going to be division. There's going to be division. You know, if if you present the gospel, you you, you should expect, you know, you'd expect to be rejected, right? You You should expect division. And so we see that there are some who sought to arrest him. But look, look what it says. But no one laid a hand on him. They were unable to do this. Now, we don't, it's not clear to us how Jesus was able to escape their efforts to arrest him. It just says that, that, that no, was, they were not able to lay a hand on him. But the reason is given. The reason that they're not able, able to seize him is this. His time had not yet come. His time had not yet come. In other words, the time of his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion had not yet come. Remember earlier in John chapter 7, when Jesus had told his brothers he would not uh, join them in coming to the feast, he told them, John 7, 6, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. You see, all things work according to the providence of God. All things work according to God's perfect timing. And so the hostile crowd who didn't like being told that they do not know God because they had refused to believe in Christ, were unable to arrest. It didn't matter how angry they were. It doesn't matter how big the mob was. They were not able to because his time had not yet come. God's perfect providence. 
God's perfect timing of all things. Now, of course, the time will come. But it wasn't yet. Now, even though there were many in the crowd who were hostile, there actually were some who believed. Again, there was this division, right? Some actually do believe. Verse 31, Yet many of the people believed. And they said, When Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? In other words, Jesus has already done a lot. He has performed many signs. It is expected that the is it expected the Messiah would do more than this? Now, of course, the expected answer is no. Of course not. And so there were some among the crowd, even as there were many who were hostile, many who who didn't like being told that they don't know God. There were others who believed. They had seen the signs, and and for them, they'd seen enough. They believed. And what, what more could anyone want? Even still, many others who had seen the signs, they don't believe. Which is to say the sign points to something else. But they're not the cause of their faith. Right? If the sign itself isn't what causes faith, it's God who causes faith. This is what, this is what those who seek experiences in our own day don't always seem to understand. Uh, their experiences don't determine what's true. As has already been taught, one must be born from above or born again. It's the supernatural work of God. Now, notice as we move on in the narrative that John's gospel uses many descriptive words. And, and really, you begin to get a sense of how un, there, there's sort of an uneasiness in the crowd now. Uh, verse 32 the, it says that the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about Jesus. And so there's all these murmurings, there's all this muttering that's going on among the people. And so the Pharisees, along, the chief, along with the chief priests, sent officers to arrest Jesus. And we had learned earlier in chapter 7 that the authorities didn't even want Jesus talked about. They didn't even want him to be a topic of conversation. But here, all the people, are, they're talking about him. And oh no, some of them are even believing in him. Right. We, we need to do something about this. Some of them were expressing faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And so now, here we find some very strange bedfellows who issue an arrest warrant. The Pharisees and the chief priests. Now the, Pharisees, the, the chief priests are made up almost entirely of the Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were natural enemies. I mean, they didn't get along on anything. They, they didn't agree. They disagreed with one another on nearly everything theologically. They disagreed with one another politically. Um, they disagreed with one another how to get along with the Romans, even. I mean, they disagreed about everything. Generally speaking, they hated each other. Okay, But suddenly, they're all the same team. They agree together to issue an arrest warrant for Jesus. Likely this is an action of the Sanhedrin, which is the highest Jewish court uh, body in the land. And assuming this is the case, there had to have been some level of agreement between the two. So here you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees agreeing together. They agree about nothing, but they agree about one thing. We need to put Jesus to death. And so the officers are sent to arrest Jesus. Probably this is the temple guards. 
Uh, the temple guards were the police force of the temple compound, mainly were drawn from among the Levites. Uh, since the goings-on in the temple were of little concern to the Roman governor, the Sanhedrin would use the temple guards as they saw fit. At this point, the Roman, the, the, the Roman overlords don't really care too much about what's going on. And so you have almost this like, sort of private police force in the temple. And so here, again, is a sad irony of the matter. Right? Here you have the leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin. These are the men who should have been zealous for the truth. They should have uh, be defending the Messiah of God and His kingdom. They should have been worshiping and believing in the King. Instead, they send officers to have Him arrested. They want to arrest Jesus. They want to kill the Messiah who had been sent from God and is God. Sad irony. But Jesus shows that the plans of men will be thwarted, even as the plans of God must come to pass. The guards will not be able to arrest him, just as they're being sent out to seize him. You know, Jesus is undisturbed by the whole thing. And in starting verse 31, 33, he says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And so here, even as they're coming to arrest him, even as they're sent out, they, he says, you're not going to be able to find me. Where I'm, I'm, he will be departing soon. Which is clear to us who know the story. You know, we understand what he's getting at. It wasn't understood then yet what he was getting at. We, you know, we've, if you've read John's Gospel or you've read, you know, you've read the Bible some, you, you know where this is headed. You know what Jesus is talking about. Jesus will be leaving. Jesus had but a short while before the cross, the timing of which had been foreordained by the Father. But death will not be the end, because Jesus will be raised again, and He will ascend to the Father, and and one day He will again return in glory. But when He does leave, Jesus will return to the Father who sent Him. And where He is going, those who seek Him... Those who seek to do him harm, that is, unbelievers, they're not going to be able to join him. They're not going to be able to find him. Those in unbelief may eventually seek deliverance, but they have rejected the Son. And there is a time coming for all those who reject the Lord when it is too late, and they will die in their sins. Or they rather, they will remain dead in their sins. Those who persist in unbelief are like Esau, who desperately wanted the blessing of the Father, but it was too late. In the end, it doesn't matter what men were planning. It doesn't matter that the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill him. All was to take place in God's perfect timing and according to his perfect will. And when Jesus does go to the cross, this will be the determined plan of God being fulfilled. The Son will have mediated for the sins of his people, those which are those who trust and rest in him. And Christ will be crowned with glory. And he will again be in the presence of the Father who had sent him. And those who are outside of the kingdom will not find him, though they may seek him. And those who are in the kingdom, have already, have, they were already sought out. And they were rescued by the merciful hand of God. Now, as usual, 
Jesus' words are misunderstood. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go? That we, can't, that we will not find him. Does he intend to go to dispersion among the Greeks? Is he going to go teach the Greeks? Right? Is he going to go out and, you know, where, is he, where does he think he's going to go? And those among the Jews who were in opposition to him couldn't imagine Jesus going someplace that they couldn't also go. And of course, they're thinking only in physical terms. It must be, they conclude, that he's going to another people. Maybe he's going to go talk, talk to, you know, teach the Greeks. Now, this is a concept that is most to be despised. I mean, who goes talking to the Greeks? Oh, Gentiles? Oh, why would you do that? Is, this what, is that what he's going to go do? What self-respecting Jew would go teach Gentiles an unclean mass of humanity? Once again, the irony is thick in John. John is filled with a lot of irony, if you really pay attention to it. After the resurrection and the ascension, isn't this precisely what the disciples will do? (laughs) Is Jesus going to go minister to the Greeks? Actually, as it turns out, yes, he will. And by the way, aren't you glad that Jesus came for Gentiles like you and me? Christ, what they, what they, you know, what they, uh, what they were saying in derision, right? What, you know, what does this guy think he's going to go to talk to the Greeks or something? Christ will accomplish in reality, gloriously. The gospel was to spread to Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Whereas the people did not understand. The reader does understand. In fact, one of the purposes of John's gospel was to be an evangelistic treatise to the Jews and the Greeks throughout the known world. John 20, 31. These things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. When you think about the sort of the, the statement of the of the prologue in chapter one, and then the statement in chapter twenty, everything else in between is basically talking about those things. These things were written so that you might believe and that you might have life in His name. This scene at the temple, which we're in the middle of studying, and we're not we're not done yet. <laughs> The scene in the the middle of the temple is in many respects a watershed moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. You know, the crowds up to this point had largely been positive, but they were seeking Jesus for the wrong reasons. They wanted what Jesus perhaps could offer them. And Jesus was challenging the notions of the leaders. He was challenging the notions of of the people of who the Messiah was to be. And many rejected Jesus as Messiah because he, he wasn't doing what they expected or he didn't come from where they thought he should come from. He didn't do what they wanted him to be doing. You know, Jesus didn't come from the right place. You know, he's, he's from Nazareth and Galilee. And as Nathaniel had said back in chapter 1, remember what, they said about, uh, what he said about, Gal- about, about Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, Nathaniel is just expressing what everybody thought. Can anything? I mean, is there anything in Nazareth that's worth anything? 
And the prevailing idea was that either the Messiah would be of unknown origin or he would come from Bethlehem. And this is, after all, where David had come from. And again, Jesus just didn't fit the bill of their expectations. What they did not understand is that the Father had sent him. He had come to reconcile a holy God to sinful men. And his time had not yet, at that point, had not yet come. But the time was coming when indeed he would go to the cross and die for his people. And he told those gathered there where he is going, they cannot come. They will seek him, but they will not find him. Of course, they didn't understand this. But here's the thing, that message still holds true today, doesn't it? Many in our day do not know Christ Jesus as Savior. And they need to know Jesus while it is yet today. There's nothing more tragic, beloved congregation, than for a sinful human being to die in their sins and trespasses. At which point it's too late. Our neighbors, our families, our friends need to know Jesus Christ. You, beloved, need to know Jesus. You need to be found in Him. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord, you can be rest assured that you have eternal life. That you are a child of God. That you are an heir of the the promise. That you are a blood-bought child of the King of Kings. That all of God's promises are true. All the promises, the covenant promises made throughout Scripture have found their fulfillment in Christ and are applied to you by faith. Pray that the words which Jesus spoke, spoke, the warnings which Jesus gave may be heeded in our own day. Pray that the Spirit of God would make effective the preaching of the gospel, even now, that the hearts of those who hear may be opened. That the lost sinner, blind and enslaved to sin, may have eyes to see and ears to hear. That they may have life in Christ. That they may find freedom and rest in our Savior Jesus. Pray. Pray for the unbeliever around us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, O oh God, for your word. We thank you for the things that we're learning here in John and the application of it to ourselves. May we be found in Christ Jesus by faith. We pray, Father, for those among us, those neighbors and co-workers and friends and family and who don't, who don't know Christ. May we be effective witnesses of Jesus And may your spirit be at work in their hearts that they may hear the gospel, even for the first time, even as they've heard it before and yet have not actually heard, that that their, their hearts may be open, that they may believe. We pray, Father, that we may be faithful to continually pray to that end. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.